You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. listening. Welcome to the prologue on America's Web Radio, a weekly program bringing you introductions to writers and books you may not be familiar with. My name is Doug Dahlgren. I'll be your host this morning. I'm an author myself, and you can find my work on Amazon, Books A Million, Barnes & Noble, all the online sites. And we call this show the prologue because that's exactly what it is. And while our introductions are mainly to writers, we love to bring you interesting people with a story to tell, some from other fields and endeavors. Now, if you or anyone you know has a book or maybe just that interesting story that needs to be told, please reach me uh, through email at Doug at AmericasWebRadio.com or Doug at DougDahlgren.com. I'd love to speak with you about the possibility of being on a future program, so reach out. Now, our guest this hour is an award-winning New York Times best-selling author. Her latest novel, Queen Bee Goes Home Again, is her 15th book and the in-demand sequel to her 2003 hit, Queen Bee of Mimosa Branch. Now, before we bring her on, please let me welcome two special groups of listeners that we're very proud to have here on the prologue. First, our folks serving in the armed forces of this country around the world, stationed wherever they may be. They work hard every day to keep us safe back home so we can live the lives that we so often take for granted. Freedom isn't free. It's bought and paid for every day by the men and women in uniform, so please don't forget them. We thank you guys and appreciate everything you do for us. I also want to mention our first responders that are here at home. That's those police, fire, and EMT personnel who rush to our aid when we need their help. Thank each of you as well for being there and for what you do, and thank you for listening to America's Web Radio. Our guest this hour shares at least one thing in common with her main character, Queen Bee. Back home herself after some time in Colorado, which she will tell us about in a few minutes, her latest book continues the tale of Linwood Scott and her second return to Mimosa Branch. The title of this book is Queen Bee Goes Home Again, and this is your prologue. It's a different feeling this time. They say you can't go home again, yet there she was. Linwood Scott finds more than herself has changed in her 10-year absence. Her income stream is dried up, and her promised alimony payments were nowhere to be found. Family members were older, some no longer able to care for themselves while one had appeared to turn his life around. There was a new member to the community, a handsome, divorced Baptist preacher, who caught her eye immediately. Her history with his congregation was a real concern to her, yet the attraction was clearly there, and it was mutual. A strange homecoming indeed, and told only as Haywood Smith could tell it, the book is Queen Bee Goes Home Again, and that author, Haywood Smith, is with us this hour. Welcome to the prologue, Haywood. Good to have you. Thank you, and hello to our wonderful service people and to our first responders. My son is an emergency room uh, doctor, and he works 
um, at Gwinnett Medical. He works the night shift at Gwinnett Medical, and he he is very grateful to all our first responders because he said if we can't if they can't get them here, we can't help them. And so he's just um, we're all deeply in debt to those people. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Appreciate you mentioning that. And we we thank all these folks who are out there that we just forget about. Like I said, we take them for granted. But they're there when we need them. Uh, Heywood, Queen Bee Goes Home Again. It was written in your particular satirical style. Was it a fun book to write? Um, People, I write humor, and I write humor that's easy to read but I write complex stories about serious issues uh, that are funny. And so people think that it's fun to write, but it's extremely difficult to write a funny book about something very serious. And so I have used a lot of uh, pre-planning and uh, character analysis, and it's very hard work for me to write a book. Um, and I have different levels of things going on in the book, different elements in the book, and so working those together so that they uh, come together in the right places at the right times is a real specific task that I have to do. And so um, basically I sweat blood to write a funny book. <laughs> That's it's a, it's how a, it is. Well, it, it's an art form. It really is, and you're, you excel <laughs> at it. The characters, you. you've already mentioned, your characters are so real and you draw the readers into their world so completely, are these folks based on people that you know? Well, every author draws from reality for their characters, but no one person is the inspiration for any specific character because we all think we have unique lives, but basically our characters break down into archetypes. They're not stereotypes, but archetypes of specific people we've all known. And so um, a lot of my readers think that I am the female protagonist in my book, The First Person Characters. But the fact is, I am that character if I had that life, which I do not. So it's, it's not me, and yet they have my sense of humor and my perspective on life. I'm a person of faith, and my characters are people of faith. But it's, it's where the rubber meets the road, faith. Not a lot of finger pointing and, and um, judgment. Um, it's just people trying to get through the curveballs that life throws us um, with humor. And I used to write historical romance novels about strong women because I come from a long line of strong women and um, and men who are real men and um, accurate history and great love scenes between husband and wife. And they made, they were very successful and they got a lot of critical acclaim and, but there was a dark moment in there where it looks like nothing is going to work out. And it took me about a month to write through that and it was like living in it. I was, you couldn't get near me. I was horrible while I was writing those dark moments. Um, but I, everything always ends up positively because I don't like books without positive resolutions. I've read all my life, and um, I've decided that I don't have time or effort or uh, the emotional stamina to read books that are draining and uh, that I close it and go, bummer. So I decided um, that I wanted to write books with positive resolutions. And after I found out my husband of 30 years, the Baptist Deacon, was engaged to a stripper and spent all our money and ran up $100,000 in debt that I was liable for, I just wasn't in the mood to write um, 
uh, Prince Charming anymore, so I switched to writing women's fiction. But I decided then I never wanted to read or write another book that didn't make me laugh and feel good. And that's what my readers are looking for. You mentioned that they often accuse you of writing about yourself. Now, you have to admit, there are some striking parallels, particularly in the Queen Bee books. Linwood Scott, Haywood Smith, uh, you know, that, that's, that's fairly uh, coincidental there now. Uh, is, is there anything more that we should know about? Well, um, as I said, all my characters are composites, but after, um, in my historicals, I do a 17-page single-spaced character analysis for each of my protagonists. And so I have all kinds of information about them, um, what their favorite color is, if they've had any surgeries, if they have any chronic illnesses, all these things, their hair color history if they're a woman, and um, all these things that may not make it into the book. But by the time I finish that, I know this character backwards and forwards. And that's what... So that's how you make people real. And you see things in life that are inspiring, and I try to include those. Um, as far as Linwood Scott, what I have to say about her is I did find out my husband was engaged to a stripper and spent all my money. But then I asked, okay, how could it be worse? So I um, had her have to move back home with her crazy southern family in the small town she married to escape. And I'm not from a small town. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. But I have eaten in diners within 50-mile radius of Buford for the last 40 years, and I like to sit near the old men's table and listen to all the lies, damn lies, gossip, and innuendo. And so I put all that in the book. And I have no idea whether any of it's true or not. But the jumping-off point for that character was the situation that mimicked mine. And the only thing that was really autobiographical in that book was that she cussed. I, I, there's a certain word that would not even come through my mind before my divorce. And afterwards, it became my mantra for about a year. And my Christian friends, it just stood them on their heads. But my Christian therapist, who was very stuffy, said, Honey, if all you did was cuss after what he did to you, you're doing pretty good. And, um, and I did... Through the course of writing that book, the character, I had been a part of a couple since I was 14 years old. And so I had never existed alone and separate. And the character that came out of my subconscious in that book made that journey. And by the time I finished that book, I was whole on my own. Now, I did not carry on. like She's a goody two-shoes, and so was I. And she tries very hard to uh, go bad with very mixed results. And I did have fun with that part. That was a lot of fun. There's no way in this world. I, I'm too religious and I'm too um, uh, smart and I'm too scared to fool around these days. You know, it can be fatal. So I have not oh, tried so. to have a revenge fling like she did. <laughs> I never would. <laughs> the story the story of Queen Bee Goes Home Again is told quite beautifully. And you speak primarily to women and to the yeah. things that they deal with as they grow older. Something you said a minute ago struck me. Uh, men wouldn't really, I didn't know what you meant until I thought about it, but hair color history. Now, see, that's a woman's uh -huh. thing, uh, right, other exactly. than guys going gray. But the issue right. is... Oh, I know. You know, men get distinguished when they go, women, uh, when they go gray, and women get extinguished. It's just <laughs> not fair. So I've been through every hair color except jet black. 
Oh, excuse me for interrupting. Well, Go ahead. Men wouldn't that's, think of that. That's quite all right. That's quite all right. But the, the issues that you talk about in the book, aging parents, nursing homes, dealing with divorce, going back to school, how did you, you know, they're not about you, but how did you research all this stuff to write such knowledgeable information for the folks to read? Well, I lived across the street from my beloved in-laws for 30 years, and my father-in-law, my mother-in-law had congestive heart failure, and my father-in-law had Alzheimer's. And so dealing with Alzheimer's and the caregivers that we had for him, I learned a great deal about that. And so that, and also my, my in-laws battled each other for 65 years. And I always thought that was something really bad, but in analyzing their relationship, I was able to see that that was they drew strength from that, um, def- defending themselves to each other, and they vented that way. And so I was able to see that in a different light, and how they were uh, loyal to one another even to the end. And um, dealing with that, I learned a lot about that. So that's in the book, and I also have um, friends who've dealt with substance abuse, and so. The, the brother who is an alcoholic, I, I learned a great deal um, from Al- Alcoholics Anonymous about how to deal with that addiction and without judgment. And so I, there's a lot of what they call program in my books as well. And so it's just what you see in life. And I'm always, I always want to know the why. That's the question that uh, authors ask. It's not what, but why. And and the motivations go. have to be there with those characters, and I create lives for them that justify their doing in in many, many instances crazy things. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, we're here this morning with Haywood Smith. We're talking about her book Queen Bee Goes Home Again, and we're going to be back with more after these short messages. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business, or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules, or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200, or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. This is Peter Wallace, inviting you to listen every Sunday morning to Day One with inspiring preachers from America's mainline churches on americaswebradio.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, 
the best in chat radio designed just for you. And we are back. This is the prologue on America's Web Radio. My name's Doug Dahlgren, and our guest today, we're delighted to have Haywood Smith with us. We're talking about her latest book, Queen Bee Goes Home Again. Uh, while we're talking, you've got 15 books that are out there. Some, you told me earlier, may not still be in print. But where can people go to find out more about your books, and where can they order your books? Well, my website is Haywood, H-A-Y-W-O-O-D-S-M-I-T-H-1-0-0. Excuse me, HaywoodSmith.net is uh, my email is Haywood100 at AOL.com, but my website is HaywoodSmith.net, and you can read about my books and read samples and excerpts, and they're available everywhere books are available, and they're also available for e-readers. Um, I am in the process of uh, making my uh, historical novels. I'm re- rewriting those for general readership and making those available as e-books. Oh, Terrific. And we want to step back into Queen Bee for just a minute here. Everybody wants to know, including my wife, where is Mimosa Branch? Mimosa Branch is any of the ex-herb towns within 100 miles around Atlanta. It's a combination. When, when a community that's been a small town, when I moved to Beaufort, Georgia, it was 3,000 occupants. Now it's just huge. And it has the Mall of Georgia, and it's enormous. But watching that transition of all these smaller cities, Smyrna, Marietta, uh, Lawrenceville, that became exurbs to Atlanta, the political corruption stuff is pretty common. It's And you know, I've had people write me from the uh, far uh, northern Pacific, from the Midwest, from all over America, from Florida, saying, this is my town. Because the small-town corruption is pretty much the same as the cities make this transition from being small towns to excerpts. And so, uh, and the political, um, the Dirty Georgia politics story was told me for truth by my late lamented um, uh, stepmother who uh, was in the real estate business uh, when the whole area up here in northeast Georgia was, uh, um, northeast of Atlanta was becoming suburbanized. And uh, she told me that story for truth, and so I put that in there because it was just so elegant and lovely and, and wicked, and I thought it was great. <laughs> and uh, so I put that in there, and just, it's, I've, as I said, I've been eating in diners at all these little towns all over within 50 miles, and, and as the wave of development and subdivisions and all that stuff comes, it's the same story over and over and over again. Well, you mentioned that people from small towns uh, recognize where they grew up or where they currently live in your writing, but the reverse of that's true. People who've never had that experience can kind of get a feel for what it's like uh, living where everybody knows everybody else's business, and uh, that can be fun as well, isn't it? Yeah, and, and um, you know, I have just so many wonderful friends that I've made over the last 40 years up this way. And um, although after Queen Bee came out and uh, they had some of the lies and innuendos in there, there's still a few people who aren't speaking to me, but I had no idea whether any of that was true or not. <laughs> That's always a risk you take. It's made good Listen, fiction. If, there you go. If we haven't already given the book away, and I hope not, 
Would you give our listeners your pitch? I know you've got a pitch for book signings and speeches and all that. Give us your short pitch for Queen Bee Goes Home Again. Well, after 10 years uh, of living on our own and being a very successful real estate agent and being able to buy our own home, of course it's mortgaged, uh, Linwood Scott, the the, um, the bottom drops out of the real estate market and Linwood Scott loses everything and has to move back home again to the garage apartment over her family home. And by then her mom is, is failing physically and her dad's in an Alzheimer's ward and uh, her mother's been begging her to come home to help her with this aging Victorian house, and she says it's like Cinderella in reverse. But um, she rises to the challenge, and all of my readers from Queen Bee and Mimosa Branch wanted her to find true love, and I planned from the very beginning, because Linwood Scott is nobody's idea of a minister's wife, for her to fall for a minister and have to deal with all the implications of that and for him to have to deal with the implications of that. And we've all seen how some of these uh, very successful pastors with megachurches have uh, toppled uh, because of their own human failings and had to deal with that. So the book deals with that as well. But basically it's a story of how she finds true love finally in, at the end of her life and uh, what it's like to date at 60 and... Um, you know, it's just, uh, I have done very limited dating, but it's been very um, interesting. <laughs> Most of the men that I met were looking for a nurse, a purse, or a 30-year-old, preferably all three rolled into one. So, <laughs> And I have a health condition, so I need a lot. I'm, I'm real high-maintenance, so that didn't work at all. But uh, <laughs> it was fun and talking to my friends about their dating experiences and stuff. But I had initially, when I wrote that first book, I had... Uh, I had planned to do that sequel at some point. And then the second book I wrote was The Red Hat Club, which made the New York Times bestseller list about six archetypal characters from Atlanta who grew up in the 60s and how they get the goods on a cheating, lying lawyer husband and terrorize high society in the process. And after that was so successful, I wrote two more books in that series. Uh, but then somebody had told me I could use some of her stories, and when I made the New York Times list, she sued me. And so the third book of that series, I had to, and not ironically, the character's name was Susu. And so um, I had to totally leave her out of the last book for legal reasons so my publisher would not have to um, defend a case. The judge threw out, um, when I found out she was upset, I changed a whole lot of things in the second book and gave that character resolution, but I wasn't even allowed to mention that character in the third book, which was really something that just, was so hard for me because I wanted to maintain that ensemble. She was my favorite character. She was the goody two-shoes gone bad who turned her back on God and, and was acting out and doing all the bad things nobody else did, and they loved her anyway. That was a real important character. And so, and then I wrote subsequent books. Well, we want to talk about the Red Hat Society and the Red Hat Club yeah. and books, books in that nature, but before we go to there... Uh, is there going to be any more from Queen Bee? I don't know. At this point, it took me 10 years to be able to get back around to Queen Bee. I have 14 potential novels in my files that I have roughed out to write. And they are they're, they're, characters are clamoring for me to tell their stories. Right now, what I'm having to focus on doing, I've had a really bad couple of years 
what I'm focusing on doing is rewriting my historical novels for which I got the rights back and um, and putting those up as ebooks for general readership. All right. Let's back up a little bit here at this point. Can mm-hmm. we do that? Um, yeah, sure. You grew up in uh, North Atlanta. Are you a native mm-hmm. Georgian? Oh, yes. My family goes way back in Georgia on both sides. All right. All right. How many siblings did you have in your family? I have two. I have four sisters and one. Um, excuse me. I'm crazy. I have three sisters and a brother. So there's four girls and a boy. My brother pays me not to write about him. <laughs> Where did you fall in the I'm number two. My older okay. sister was the perfect, you know, little mother, and she was the peacemaker, and I was the rebel. But I was smart about it, so I got away with a lot of stuff. I was the child every parent fears. Uh, you know, I decided whether the punishment was worth the crime, and then I just did it and took my medicine, which is a terrible thing. Is now that I'm a, was a parent, it was like, oh, I hope he's not. Well, he kind of was, but it's okay. He turned out great. <laughs> but well, I was going um, to ask you what life was like growing up in your family, but you may have covered that already. Well, we lived on a block-long street after World War II. It was GI. GIs building little houses there in Collier Hills right after the war, and that was when that was the edge of Atlanta, right there at Northside Drive and Collier and Peachtree, that area. And um, it was, you didn't have to, you know, I mean, we played out every day. If you came in on a sunny day, your mother said, What's the matter? You know, we played out, we played in tree houses, and we played. and chase and tag and riding bikes and all that stuff. It's a world that's gone now, and I think it's really sad for our kids that we can't get let them out of our sight anymore for safety reasons. But it was a great um, upgrowing. But I had I didn't know I had a lot of orthopedic problems, and I couldn't do a lot of things the other kids did. But I was stubborn, so I learned how to do them, even if I ended up black and blue, and it took me twice as long. And um, so I didn't know at the time that I had a a chronic uh, genetic form of um, chronic inflammatory osteoarthritis, and I didn't even know till I was four years old that everybody else didn't hurt. I just figured that was the way it was because it was always the way I had been. But books became an escape for me, and I was blessed with two parents who loved to read, and they belonged to the Great Books Club, and we went to the library twice a week, and I read everything I could get my hands on. I learned to read at an adult level very early. And so I read everything, newspapers, uh, the dictionary, the encyclopedia, um, my daddy's Playboys, which came in handy when I wrote the romances. And um, so... Uh, I just read everything I could, and when I became a teenager, I read all the great books. And they had questions and answers in the back, and I learned literary construction and analysis from just doing that because I wanted to learn. And they had the answers, and if I didn't know the answers, then I was able to. But I learned to analyze literature and to see it um, from a construction standpoint. So that was my literary education. And then uh, I met my... um, childhood sweetheart when I was 14 fell madly in love with what I thought he was and uh, never looked up for breath. I was blissfully happy, married at 19 and was very happy for 30 years and then we found out, you know, about all the, the stripper and everything. And, um, but you afterwards I realized... 
Well, the thing about it is he did get addicted to Internet porn over the Internet, and then he went to the strip clubs and they stripped, they fleeced him. And the fact was he never asked me to make him into someone else. Um, and that's why he never talked to me about anything that didn't matter because uh, anything that mattered because he knew he was not the person I thought he was. And he deserved to be loved for who he was. And so it made it really, once you've seen the truth after years of illusion, you, go, you can't go back to the illusion. And he deserved to be loved for who he was. And fortunately, uh, of course, the stripper dropped him when she found out he didn't have any money. Surprise! And, um, but a friend of mine was widowed. He's a precious Christian girl that our kids grew up in church together. And she had nurtured her husband through a long illness. And then when he died, she was left with this huge void. And my ex needed another mother, and she needed a project. So they uh, got together, and it's been wonderful for both of them. And I'm so grateful for that. People wanted me to be mad at her, and I was like, why? (laughs) You know, why? And and people want to be mad at my ex. And, And my grandmother told me, honey, being bitter, you can be bitter, but it's like drinking poison and expecting it to hurt the other person. Folks, we are thoroughly enjoying our visit this morning with Hay- Haywood Smith. We've been talking about her writing, her books, and her life. And we're going to be back with more after these short messages. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And welcome back. We're here this morning with Haywood Smith. One of her books, the latest in her series of 15 novels, is called Queen Bee Goes Home Again. And we've been talking about it. We've been talking about Haywood's life. 
and we want to get into you had an illness that we'll talk about a little bit later in detail, but that illness had you reading considerably when you were younger, and yet you waited until you were in your 40s to turn that into writing yourself. What was it that held you up? Why did you wait so long? Well, um, I married at 19, and I very much wanted a family. And back when the infertility therapy was in its infancy, um, I went through infertility therapy for four years, and finally I conceived and bore a son. I carried him for 10 months, so I accused him of coming out walking, talking, and smoking. But um, And then when he was three months old, we discovered he had a very aggressive form of liver cancer. And... Mm. Um, I gave him back to God and told God that he was his, not mine, and that he could keep him if he wanted to, but I sure would like to keep him, and the Lord blessed and let us let us keep him. But um, uh, as I was, I was a full-time wife and mom with him, and I was hypervigilant because a lot of kids that have been sick, their parents are, and I was, but I tried to let him have a real life, too. And... Um, so I was a stay-at-home mom, and then my, my husband's family's business was in the textile industry, and when it started to die, I needed to go to work. And I had to pick a job that wouldn't tie me to a desk because I just, it was, that would have been absolute perdition for me. So um, I, my stepmother suggested that I go into real estate. She um, was a realtor out in the Tequila area in, in Lawrenceville, and so um, i went to Skipper Morrison Realty in North Atlanta and uh, in Norcross, and I worked as a real estate agent. But God didn't want me to be a real estate agent, so I did have some lovely buyers and sellers, but the majority were crazy. And so I understand some agents think that everybody who does a real estate transaction goes crazy, but that was not the case. I had some lovely people, but I also had some really nutty people. And um, I ended up... um, going out of town for two weeks and almost ended up in a lawsuit because a material misrepresentation was made by a party, not the seller, to a party, not the buyer, while I was out of town and my partner negotiated a sale. And um, I finally called my friend and I said, I can't do this anymore. I mean, I'm honest and, and reputable and I just can't stay in a business where I'm at such risk just because I went out of town. And so she said, well, if somebody told you you were going to die in two years, what would you do? And I heard my voice say, I'd write a book and try to get it published. And that was news to me, but all of a sudden I knew what I wanted to be when I grew up. So I quit my job and went home and told my husband, guess what? I quit my job, I'm going to write a book. And I thought he was going to have a coronary. (laughs) <laughs> but I discovered that my best chance of being published as a woman was in the romance genre. It was very popular and continues to be so. And so I decided I loved historical novels by authors like Taylor Caldwell and Mary Stewart and Antonia Fraser and that were accurate historicals um, about it made history come alive to me. And so I thought I could write that. So I wrote one, but uh, it didn't have any sex in it, and I couldn't sell it. So I believe that the um, the gift of, of a conjugal relationship in marriage was uh, God ordained that before the fall, and that it was one of God's richest blessings in marriage. And so I could write about that as long as I did it tastefully. I was very naive, though, so I didn't even know that that first love scene I wrote was bondage. I was just trying to avoid writing the P word from uh, my main character, who was had been in a 
convent all her life and never seen anything male. So um, anyway, my mom got over that. But that book, um, I worked on it for seven years, and I did seven rewrites. And I learned, I joined Georgia Romance Writers, and I learned the art, the craft, and the business of writing for popular fiction. And it took uh, all of that. And the book was considered a red-headed stepchild because it was set in France, which I thought was romantic and they said was box office poison. And it was after colonial, it was after medieval and before colonial, which wasn't popular. But when it was finally sold, uh, I, I got an agent at the uh, 1994 um, Romance Writers of America conference. And it, when it sold, it was uh, and published. It was nominated for four national awards and won one. So I continued to write historicals for six more historicals. But then uh, my marriage blew up, and and I changed what I wrote. But that was the best advice anybody could ever give me. When she said, "Why?" You know, after I said I want to write a book and get it published, she said, "Why are you waiting for a death sentence?" So wow. I followed my dream, and I got my dream was to make the New York Times list, and I lived it. I worked real hard at that, <laughs> but I lived it. Now, there was a poem involved, Jenny Joseph's poem, mm-hmm. Warning. Tell us how that yes. tied into your inspiration. Well, my second book, after I wrote Queen Bee of Mimosa Branch, I wanted to do a book about friendship and the things women do right and wrong. And I made up the 12 sacred traditions of friendship that I took some of the good stuff from the guys and, and, and I talked to, you know, counselors and all this stuff about how women can maintain. We're culturally conditioned in this country to tear each other down personally and professionally. So I wanted to write a group of women who did not do that. And I made up the 12 Sacred Traditions of Friendship. And I was talking to my critique partner who had moved to Topsail Island, and we do remote critique. And she said there was a group of women who met together and the ones gave each other red hats when they turned 50 out there where she lived at Topsail Island based on the poem I had had hanging in my office for 10 years. Jenny Justice's porn warning is, uh, when I'm an old woman, I will wear purple and a red hat that doesn't go and doesn't suit me. And spend my pension on satin sandals and summer gloves and say there's no money for butter and it goes on this declaration of independence from midlife and beyond and I loved that poem so um, I decided based on that little grassroots red hat group there to call it the red hat club Um, out in California a woman named Sue Ellen Cooper had franchised the idea she did the same thing with her group and it was very popular and so she decided to franchise it on the Internet, and she developed the Red Hat Society. And, of course, my book, I didn't even know about the Red Hat Society. When, I'm, when I write my books, I had planned every single scene and every objective for those scenes out in advance before I sit down to start writing the book. So I was halfway through the book before I even found out about the Red Hat Society. But God looks after me, and so my book came out when the Red Hat society was coming to prominence uh the baby boomers were um uh very big and they were there a lot of readers and so um this book i offered to put an excerpt from her book she writes nonfiction, kind of chicken soup for the soul books for women and i figured it wouldn't be any competition with her and um i offered to give an excerpt in the back of my book for her and um I think she hers are very G-rated, and there was one scene in the Red Hat Club where they find 
um, her uh, one of the characters' husbands in flagrante delicto in front of a plate glass door, and it's kind of graphic. And so I think she just you know felt like that was a little too adult for her readership. But um, I love. I became a red hat queen uh, in the society, and I had my red hat group and. Um, I love the Red Hats. They're fabulous, and they've been wonderful fans. And they continue to write me and ask me to write more of the Red Hat Club books. But by the time things are so delayed, and after that lawsuit and everything, um, I had already moved on into single title books about specific issues that I felt like I wanted to write about. But I love the Red Hat Society. It's a great chance for women who have been widowed or divorced to, to go out and just be silly with their friends and um, you know, life gives you grief for free, and so um, I figured it's a great op- any organization that allows women to get out and just have fun and and dress up tacky. And I've always been kind of tacky, an embarrassment to my family. My mother's a true lady; she really tried with me, but it just didn't take. And so I loved all the gaudy stuff and everything, and I've just had a great fun with the Red Hat Society. Excellent. I want to back up a little bit now, back to the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yes. Before you became published, you uh, alluded to it, but you didn't really go into it that much. It took you a number of years of trial and learning to actually become published. Um, <laughs> how many unpublished stories do you have lying around that need to be revisited? Uh, you know, a lot of people write a bunch of books under the bed, and I wrote one book seven times. So um, I did the, these major rewrites on the same novel that was my first historical novel. So I don't have other books lying around under the bed. I have uh, books that an idea comes to me. Like with my um, book, Waking Up in Dixie, I'd written about a lot of middle-aged men acting badly, and I thought, what if I have a bad man who turns good? And so and I was, I was thinking about that idea, and in the middle of the night, a sentence came to me, and it said, there's something to be said for being married to the meanest man in town as long as he's the richest. And I'd always wondered why a woman would put up with a serially uh, unfaithful man. And so I wrote a book that explained that, but I also gave it a positive resolution. Now, your historical romance novels, to us guys Mm -hmm. out here, to us that means that the cover is going to have a fellow on there with longer and prettier hair than the woman on the cover. So that kind of turns no. us off right, right to start with. But yours were not only romance novels, but you had that historical aspect to it. How did you uh, research uh, this historical detail that you include in your stories? Well, God put me in touch with a woman at the University of Georgia who was in the history department, and I called over there and asked to speak to the two people that were in charge of it when I was going to write a book set in the mid-1600s and um, in France. And... She said they were both gone, and she said, my name's Betty Usman. How may I help you? And I said, is there anybody who knows anything about the mid-1600s in France? And she said, well, I just finished transcribing the memoirs of a fascinating French princess who has not been written about in English for my doctoral dissertation. How may I help you? Wow. And she let me access. She said, nobody's working on that period in history. She let me check out reference books on her professor's card. She gave me books from my, from her personal collection, and um, I was able to research. For three months, I just immersed myself in research, and I became an expert in a very narrow place in time. 
and the character, the stuff that had been written about this woman, this French princess, was very mixed um, as far as who she was. But Americans don't understand the arrogance of being the cousin to a king. And so I had to try to fix, yeah, make a situation where I have a character that had been, uh, she was noble by birth, but she'd been hidden in a convent to protect her life. And so when she comes out into that culture, the American reader comes with her. And she's used to taking orders instead of giving them. And we make that transition into that royal culture with her. So the, the reader has a placeholder in that situation, and they can understand that. And, and we're um, going to be back. We're going to have to cut off here just a second, and we're going to be back with more from Haywood Smith after these messages. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. And you are listening to the prologue on America's Web Radio. Our guest today is Haywood Smith. We've been talking about her writing and her latest book, Queen Bee Goes Home Again. Uh, we were talking before the break about the historical romance novels and the switch that took you over from that into a totally different genre uh, involving the Red Hat Club and ladies and transitions in their lives. Um, I understand that uh, a divorce played uh, a great role in that, and uh, yet in your case, change was certainly a good thing. The first two novels in this new line or new series of uh, of genre were New York Times bestsellers. I read somewhere that you actually sent your ex a thank you note for that. Is that true? Yes, I did. We're good friends now, so uh, yeah, absolutely. I'm grateful because I would have still continued. Uh, my income from my historicals was a subgenre, and so it was a good supplemental income. But when I needed to, uh, you know, make my way without a college diploma, um, I uh, I switched to women's fiction because it offered me the option to be self-supporting, and uh, I never would have done that without what happened. And, you know, God has a plan, and. He's looked after me, and um, I continue to uh, try to use what he's given me to uh, make my way. And the only thing that's been difficult is since the recession, the book industry, traditional publishing, is really back against the wall. Many, many of my readers who used to buy my books now use the library, and God bless them because that's how I grew up reading, but they're not buying books. And so even the major authors that are out there, their sales are down anywhere from 60 to 
No, that's true. That's true with all of us. It really is. Yes. Uh, Queen Bee, uh, Queen Bee books, and much of your Southern Women series, if I can call it that, includes yes. Christian lessons and even some sermons. Now, is that something intentional, or is that just a, a natural part of these stories? Well, Southern fiction is about faith, food, and family, and I'm a person of faith. And um, so it's part of my books. But what I have to do in order to make it acceptable for these secular publishers is I put in ten times more faith than I want to get, and they cut out 90%, and I end up with what I wanted in the first place. But it's an intrinsic part of these characters, and it can't be separated from their lives. And it's part of my life. It's how I manage from day to day, and it's my comfort and my joy. And, you know, the joy of faith is something far sturdier than happiness. And that's what I live in joy every day, no matter whether I'm in pain, no matter what's going on. If I'm in financial disaster, there's still joy. I look out my window and see the sun and the trees, and I have a roof over my head, and I have a warm bed, and that is enough to make me grateful for the rest of the day. In 2014, you made a uh, a real stern decision. You left Georgia for a while, and that was because of the needs uh, of a granddaughter. Uh, yet you referred to yourself as a medical marijuana refugee. Now, real briefly, because we got a lot we need to cover in these last yeah. nine minutes here, tell me, uh, tell our listeners what that was about real briefly. My precious granddaughter um, at five started exhibiting some behaviors that we attributed to going to kindergarten and and, uh, having a new baby brother. But uh, when she turned six and went to school, she started having seizures. And uh, they were progressive. And everything, all the meds that we tried, the conventional meds, nothing worked. And her electroencephalogram looked like jagged lines in every different color you could imagine. She was in seizure essentially all the time and nothing worked. And so in desperation, we packed up the whole family, my son, and there are four other siblings, so there's five grandchildren, and my wonderful daughter-in-law and and my son live across the street from me in the grandparents' house. We all packed up and went out to Colorado. My son had to continue to work here. And um, so he commuted, and he also lobbied. He acted as the representative from the medical uh, profession to the legislature to try to legalize medical marijuana because when we got out there the medical marijuana they were able to get her off one of the very destructive drugs that wasn't helping her and it uh she was able to go back to school she was singing she was dancing she still has the grand mal seizures occasionally but much fewer and they steal a little bit of who she is every time but so many fewer it literally saved her life because her prognosis was fatal and she takes it in an oil form, and nobody can get high on this stuff. And when I hear this slippery slope stuff, it just makes me so sad because there's so many people out there who are uninformed. The legal, uh, the uh, law enforcement gets 80% of their funding for marijuana prosecutions. And um, when they say slippery slope, I think, you know, we have to become federal drug felons. We can have it in Georgia and use it, but we have to become federal drug felons to get it for my granddaughter. Education, knowledge, I admit I don't know as much about that as, as, mm-hmm. as I should. Uh, and most of us, we see what we see. We see uh, mm-hmm. the drug use and abuse, and, and that's, of course, what we relate to when we think about mm-hmm. things like this. But, <clears throat> excuse me, your granddaughter and her needs, uh, that's something mm-hmm. that we need to educate ourselves on. Uh, how is Marlo? Is that her name, Marlo? 
Yes, her name is Marlo, and she's so precious, such a loving child. Um, she is doing much better. She is only having a couple of grand mal seizures a week at the moment. She's going through puberty, which is really hard for kids with uh, seizures because it messes up their metabolism, and we have to adjust medications and everything. But um, she's back down to having only one or two seizures a week and uh, the major seizures, and we have her back, and she's alive. Wonderful. Her prognosis was fatal, oh, that it's progressive well, we and the children die. We hope that she'll continue to improve and, and live you. a long, uh, fruitful life. Speaking of illnesses, uh, I want to go into this with you a little bit. In the acknowledgments of Queen Bee Goes Home Again, you mentioned a local doctor that helped you with a long-term illness that you had. You alluded to it some earlier in the discussion. Um, you know about the pain that you endured for so many years with chronic fungal arthritis. Do you mind sharing real quickly with the readers what your experience was like? Well, I was uh, my by the time I was forty, I had the joints of a ninety-year-old. I had inflammatory. I was in inflammatory mode because my body doesn't make antibodies to yeast, mold, or fungi. Welcome to the south. And so um, it it uh, crippled my pituitary system and it um, trashed my joints. And so, um, and my doctor, my wonderful orthopedic surgeon, Dr. R. Marvin Royster, um, wouldn't do the, the uh, joint replacements until I was 55 because they were using the metal on metal, and he said those were not satisfactory. And when they finally came out with the titanium and plastic ones, I was able to get four artificial joints. And it was just, I could walk straight. And it was the most expensive thing in the world, but I ended up having daylight my between my thighs for the first time in my life. <laughs> it was like, yes. Now you said that. You said that rather <laughs> casually, but you have had uh-huh. double knee and double hip replacements. People yes. Today, and I've spinal had one surgeries. And spinal <laughs> surgery. My goodness, that's serious stuff. Uh, there was a cure that came out of a rather odd situation with a uh, rabid raccoon. Tell us about yes, that. Yes, I got bitten by a rabid raccoon in my backyard, and I went through the rabies treatments, and I used that in two of my books, and I went through the rabies treatments, and I ended up getting very ill, and that's how I found the doctor that knew about this genetic condition, and I'm on a real strict regimen, and I have to keep my home mold remediated and eat a very strict, limited diet, but I can live without pain with that. It's a miracle. Outstanding. Oh. It's, there's a book that you wrote kind of about that, a satirical book about the situation out of warranty. Folks can go look yeah. for that one. I think you wrote it in 2013. So for more information about what you went through in a, in a uh, tongue-in-cheek fashion, Out of Warranty by Haywood Smith is one they need to look up. How are you doing today? How, how are you with the pain? Um, I am well. I've been having to do manual labor in my yard to clean up the storm damage because I can't afford to pay somebody else to do it. So I'm kind of sore. Everybody gets sore when you're chopping up branches and stuff. But by you know God's will, I'm functional and I'm happy, and um, I thank God for it. Wow. Well, as we wind up this hour, and my goodness, this has been one of the quickest ones we've had on the prologue. Uh, can you think <laughs> of anything that we've left off? Um. No, I just, um, if you're looking for a read that will make you laugh and feel good, um, try my books and my historicals, which I'm reissuing. Um, those are, will be available uh, one by one as ebooks, and that's what I'm currently working on right now. And tell the folks again about your website and also your email address. My website is haywoodsmith.net, H-A-Y-W-O-O-D, like Haywood, 
uh, Haystack and Woodpile, and Plato Smith. And then my email is Haywood100 at AOL.com. And I love to hear from readers who like my books. If you don't, please be merciful and keep it to yourself. <laughs> okay. Do you have any shout-outs, anybody you just have to say hello to this morning? Hello to my precious five grandchildren who live across the street, including my Marlo, and I love them all to smithereens. And that's, I'm in Grandma Heaven because I live across the street from my grandbabies. They get to come up one at a back. time, and we have a ball. That's terrific. Listen, Haywood Smith, thank you so much for being our guest today on the prologue. I hope you've had a good time. I know we've had. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Now, for myself, that'll do it for today. I am Doug Dahlgren. I thank you for listening to the prologue. For my guest this hour, Haywood Smith, and for myself, Doug Dahlgren, I say have a great rest of your week. Be good to yourselves and each other. Read a book, if not one of Haywood's, maybe one of mine. And I'll see you all again in just 167 hours. Take care now. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed.